Welcome to Disaffected. I'm Joshua Slocum, and this is the show where we talk about politics, culture, and relationships through a psychological lens from dystopian Burlington, Vermont, and it is February 10th, 2024. This episode, the theme of this episode is, is total disconnection from reality in nearly every domain in the West. Tonight, we're going to talk about that from top to bottom. Let's start at the top. You've probably seen reference to the U.S. Special Counsel's report on President Joe Biden keeping classified documents at his home, and the Special Counsel was commissioned to decide whether this was a prosecutable offense. Um, for any of you who haven't seen it, here's the spoiler. It's not. <laughs> it's troubling what, what you're about to see here. This is from the Special Counsel's report. So this is the Justice Department that works underneath President Joe Biden. So it's not an adversarial Justice Department. Keep that in mind. I'm going to give you some excerpts from it. First one here. Quote, Mr. Biden's memory also appeared to have significant limitations, both at the time he spoke to Zahn Zwanitzer in 2017, as evidenced by their recorded conversations, and today as evidenced by his recorded interview with our office. Mr. Biden's recorded conversations with Zwanitzer from 2017 are often painfully slow, with Mr. Biden struggling to remember events and straining at times to read and relay his own notebook entries. Next quote. In his interview with our office, Mr. Biden's memory was worse. He did not remember when he was vice president, forgetting on the first day of the interview when his term ended. And in parentheses, he said, quote, if it was 2013, when did I stop being vice president? And forgetting on the second day of his interview when his term began. Another quote from that is, in 2009, am I still vice president? He did not remember, even within several years, when his son Bo died. And his memory appeared hazy when describing the Afghanistan debate that was once so important to him. Among other things, he mistakenly said he had a, quote, real difference of opinion with General Carl Eikenberry, when, in fact, Eikenberry was an ally whom Mr. Biden cited approvingly in his Thanksgiving memo to President Obama. There's more. Next one. In addition, Mr. Biden's memory was significantly limited, both during his recorded interviews with a ghostwriter in 2017 and in his interview with our office in 2023. And his cooperation with our investigation, including by reporting to the government that the Afghanistan documents were in his Delaware garage, will likely convince some jurors that he made an innocent mistake rather than acting willfully, that is, with intent to break the law as the statute requires. And we have one or two more. Next one. Again, this is the Justice Department, their recommendations. We have also considered that at trial, Mr. Biden would likely present himself to a jury, as he did during our interview of him, as a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. Based on our direct interactions with and observations of him, he is someone for whom many jurors will want to identify reasonable doubt. It would be difficult to convince a jury that they should convict him, by then a former president well into his 80s, of a serious felony 
that requires a mental state of willfulness. Well, does not being present in itself require a state of mental willfulness? Um, <laughs> so they're not going to prosecute him because he's going to appear to be a well-meaning old man with a poor memory rather than somebody willfully breaking the law. I can't say whether he willfully broke the law, but it doesn't look to me as though he's done anything different from what Donald Trump did in keeping some documents. And Donald Trump is certainly being prosecuted for that. What are... It's impossible to parse this. Uh, anyway, there's, there's one last quote from this report I want to share with you. Um, Quote, we conclude the evidence is not sufficient to convict, and we decline to recommend prosecution of Mr. Biden for his retention of classified Afghanistan documents. But again, they're going to prosecute Donald Trump for the same thing. This is disconnected from reality, as is Joe Biden's embarrassing and sad public reaction to this during a press conference that was hastily called, apparently, I would assume it's hastily called, uh, the day that this came out. And coincidentally, here are the air quotes, coincidentally called at the time that Tucker Carlson's two-hour-long interview with Russian President Vladimir Putin was airing on Twitter slash X. So um, we've got two clips of Biden here. Let's roll the first one when the press is asking him questions. Mr. President, for months when you were asked about your age, you would respond with the words, watch me. Watch Many me. American people have been watching and they have expressed concerns about your age. That is they, your judgment. They, that is your is judgment. That is not the judgment concerns. of the press. They express concerns about your mental acuity. They say that you are too old. Mr. President, in December, you told me that you believe there are many other Democrats who could defeat Donald Trump. So why does it have to be you now? Why, what is your answer to that question? I'm the most qualified person in this country to be president of the United States and finish the job I started. Oh, boy. Not out of character for him. He's always been this way, but really combative. Um, Combative in a way that suggests to me that he's not in control of his emotional impulses in a way that's typical of people who are getting senile slash uh, in dementia, Alzheimer's, whatever the particular diagnosis may be. We don't need to know what that particular diagnosis is. We can all see that he's losing his mental faculties and his, his executive function. Um, I have no love for Joe Biden. Um, I believe that he is a wicked man, and I believe he's always been a wicked man. Um, you don't need to... And you can go back and listen to any of his floor speeches, any of the things he's said over his 40-year career as a politician, and you can find what looks to me like narcissism, opportunism, flip-flopping. I mean, they all flip-flop, of course, but this, this is not a nice man. I don't think Joe Biden has ever been well-meaning. Um, but at this point, now, we're, we're almost looking at a different person. You know, somebody, somebody on the Substack. Um, on our Substack recently, um, talked to, asked for some advice about how to deal with a family member who's moving into her house, who who is who has early stages of Alzheimer's and whose personality is changing. 
Um, she's becoming very difficult. She's becoming paranoid. She's accusing her son and her daughter-in-law of stealing her medicine, stealing her money. These are all, I've, I've seen this many times. I've seen it happen to people I know, people who are friends, acquaintances, work colleagues. Um, in, a, in, a, in a real sense, dementia and Alzheimer's change, a, they, they become a different person. It, it's not just that they lose their filter. They do lose their filter and they get angry a lot more. But the content of their character, if you will, really does seem to change. I've seen genuinely sweet people, accommodating, gracious people turn into vicious, nasty, accusatory, um, extremely foul-mouthed people in a way that you'd never seen before in their life. So I, I think that's going on here, too. I don't even know if I'm criticizing Joe Biden or I'm criticizing the, the person who's replaced Joe Biden, right? Um, there's one more clip here um, from that press conference, and he, he's reacting to his own special counsel's report. Remember that I told you a few minutes ago, the special counsel said that he couldn't even remember when his son, Bo, died. I know there's some attention paid to some language in the report about my recollection of events. There's even reference that I don't remember when my son died. How in the hell dare he raise that? Frankly, when I was asked the question, I thought to myself, it wasn't any of their damn business. Let me tell you something. Some of you have commented, I wear since the day he died, every single day, the rosary he got from our lady of Every Memorial Day, we hold a service remembering him, attending by friends and family and the people who loved him. I don't need anyone. I don't need anyone to remind me when he passed away. Passed away. Now, people who have talk shows, and I'm, I'm a people like that, um, I've said much more profane and combative things than, than, than what he did there. But this is a talk show. I've given public speeches on issues, political issues. I've been an invited speaker. I've done public speaking for more than 20 years. I don't do that, even to that level. Time and place, context. He doesn't have any command over it at this point. He couldn't even remember. He's saying that, well, it's it's a deflection, right? You can understand it. He. He wants to deflect from the fact that people can see and people are writing down that he has a memory problem. So he tries to mischaracterize that as if they had done something inappropriate. They'd done an emotional harm to him. They'd transgressed the boundaries of, of politeness and etiquette. That's completely inappropriate. This is not a family. We're not at a family reunion here. We are talking about the mental fitness of the president of the United States and possible charges about retaining classified documents. This is entirely inappropriate. And it's narcissistic. It's, it's narcissistic. Um, but here we are. And did you notice that he couldn't even remember where he got that rosary? He said, from Our Lady of. And we had about two or three seconds of silence. He just proved it right there in front of everyone. And astonishingly. No, I guess I shouldn't say astonishingly. What's the word for it? At this point, it's beyond irritation. It's it's exasperation, I guess. Mainstream media people, uh, political commentators who are well known on social media, saying things like, 
He was great. This was a fantastic press conference. He's right on his toes. It's just, it's just complete reversal. It's just flipping the coin. Disconnection from reality. Now, we're going to see some disconnection from reality on a bus in a Canadian city. This is a four-minute video. So I'm going to set it up for you. And for those of you who are listening at home, I will jump in a few times to tell you what's going on. But let me describe it really quickly. This is Billboard Chris, the Canadian man, the father. We've had him on the show before, who goes around North America wearing billboards, uh, sandwich boards that say things like um, no child is born in the wrong body. Uh, Kids can't consent to puberty blockers. Don't sterilize children. These sorts of messages. And he's been assaulted I, I, I don't know how many times. It's not a couple of times. It might be up to a dozen, maybe even 20 times, uh, including having his arm broken by a guy who got so angry that Chris was saying, don't do this to children on a sign that he broke his arm. This is how vicious these people on the left are today. The crazies, the far lefties. And no, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that that those who are on the left but wouldn't break somebody's arm. You're not. You don't escape all responsibility for this. Your acquiescence, your silence, even sometimes your support for this contributes to an atmosphere that allows this kind of violence to take place. So it's it's their responsibility too. But what happened here, I don't we don't have the video from right before this, but Chris was walking down the street and a trans person who I believe but cannot confirm Uh, because he or she keeps their head. Do you see how they force me into the pronouns? Uh, uh, Their hoodie down. So he can't be on video, can't be caught for what he did. It's, oh, it's really frustrating. Um, Put his hands on Chris. And Chris had had enough of it and followed this person onto the city bus with video so that he could get video for the police. And what happens is this, I believe it's, I'm just going to say this guy, if I'm wrong, I'll correct myself next week. This guy pretending to be a woman with teal purple hair, uh, not teal purple, teal hair, um, does every cluster B trick in the book from screaming to a reversal. Um, let's, um, and, and what, and, <laughs> and because the people on the bus, including the bus driver, don't have the context, they're upset at Chris primarily in the beginning. So let's, let's take a listen. Chris is getting on the bus right now to follow him. Just ran on the street and assaulted me. Get you on video, shall we? This guy walked all the way to the back of the bus. He's got his head down in an anonymous woman's lap. She looks uncomfortable, but she's not pushing him away. Let's see ya. I said get off me, you dick! Let's get a look at him. Now he's he's jumping up, he's screaming, and he's he's punching his fist at Chris. Now he's screaming, help me. What the fuck is that? Now he's grabbing Chris's sign and pulling Chris, trying to pull him to the floor. This person needs to be arrested, that's why. Who are you? You're being an asshole. Let go of my sign. Feral animal. Let go of my sign. Stop hurting me, he says. He just pulled on Chris's sign. He just tried to hit him, and he said, stop hurting me. Now there's a woman on the bus who's comforting him. She's cuddling him. 
Youngest spawn comforting Now the bus driver's telling him to get off the bus. So you're siding with the person who assaults people? No! Yo, your approach is wrong! Your approach is wrong! What's my approach? What's wrong with my approach? You cannot just... This person comes and punches me on the street. Honestly. my approach is wrong. Okay. You have the cops. You do not come bring your assault in the bus with the passengers. I walk on a bus to a person assaulting out, please. I'll see you later, okay? Out, please. You're a moron. He's on the floor oh, screaming I like a baby. Assaulting people. Yeah. Well, you have the cop. You can't come to here. You. I can't call the cops when she's on the bus. Can no, I? No, call the cell. Okay, this is the number of the bus. I came to get the person on video so I could call the cops. But you cannot come maybe and disturb my maybe passenger. Maybe stop siding with people who are assaulting I'm not siding with it, but your sure approach you is wrong. What's wrong about it? Oh my Look God. Look at him! That's how it is? That's how yes, it is? she needs to get arrested or he, whatever it is. I don't know what he, she did, but you're, I do. you're a problem now. No, this person needs to go Listen, to the police. You see all this? Be arrested. You see all this? Yeah. You're not supposed to come yeah. to the public like the bus. Footage. Give me the footage. Just go! Email the footage to Christian. Listen to this toddler temper tantrum. It's hard to tell, but this is this is a man at least in his twenties. Listen, listen, you did something wrong, that's why you're running. So you don't know now, now the bus driver is, is actually going at, at the, the trans guy. I know, but I'm sure you did something wrong. That's why they call it freedom. They can do whatever they want. If you're not agree, you call the cops. I'm sorry, I heard. Okay, okay, it's enough. It's enough. I just want to live my life. Okay. You just hear that? I'm sorry, I hurt people. I'm sorry, I hurt people. You do not assault somebody. See how you disturb my bus and my passenger. He came. He was after me. Okay. Okay. Is enough. Go sit down with the chair. Go sit on a chair. I don't want you sitting here. I'm about to empty chair. Okay. Okay. Come on. You just ruined my whole day. Okay, there's a lot wrong here. Um, there's a lot wrong with this man. I can't possibly know everything that's wrong with him, but but some of it absolutely screams cluster B personality disorder. I can't tell the degree to which he's genuinely emotionally dysregulated and really this upset and how much of this is him giving license to his aggression and using 
uh, the signals of being wounded and hurt, the crying and the screaming and the I just want to live my life. It could be either. It could be a mixture of both. And regardless of what that mixture is, all of that behavior tracks with cluster B personality disorders. Um, which ones? Certainly looks to me like there's some elements of borderline personality structure here. There may be some antisocial personality disorder as an add-on. Just a guess, but this is, this is not normal. I, so I want to point out a few things here to, to underline how abnormal this is. Can you imagine something like this happening on a bus with any frequency 20 years ago, 30 years ago? I mean, sure, we've all, you know, mo not all of us. <laughs> You're not all from the trailer park like me. Um, not all of us have been on a Greyhound bus, but I, I've been on a lot of Greyhound buses. And on, on Greyhound buses, I've seen some things that a woman ain't supposed to see. <laughs> but really, this kind of thing is happening more and more. And I want to point a few things out here. This guy, after he assaults Chris and gets on the bus, he doesn't expect to be followed. He runs to the back of the bus, to the very back of uh, the back seat against the wall. And there's a young woman sitting there and the trans guy with the teal hair who's hiding his face under his hoodie. These people, these people know what they are. They know they're wrong. He puts his head down in this woman's lap. Now, she's got this horribly uncomfortable look on her face. But what alarmed me about that, she doesn't push him away. I mean, yeah, she's she's shocked. She doesn't know what to do. Fight, fight, flight, freeze, fawn. I get it. Uh, we don't always know how to react in, in that situation, but she doesn't push him away. And then he sits down on the floor and starts screaming, I just want to live my life. I just want to live my life. What does that have to do with the fact that you assaulted Chris Elston on the street and then tried to run away so that he couldn't catch you? Is that the kind of life you want to live? Because if it is, you're not entitled to that kind of life. You can't live that life. It's assault. And... When he sits down on the floor, for those of you who couldn't see this, if you're listening, a youngish woman, somewhere between 25 and 30, blonde woman, gets down on the floor with him and she puts her arms around him and she starts stroking him. She's comforting him like a mother. This is the hijacking of female maternal instinct and empathy that these personality disordered people exploit, right? Because she, her empathy lobe has been activated. She thinks he's the victim. That's what he wants her to think, right? She, she doesn't know what happened before this. And, you know, I reacted to this originally on Twitter without having seen all of it. And I'm going to retract uh, my reaction. I was really critical of the bus driver. And, and, and how, why is it that you're, why is it that you're siding, you know, with, with the guy who, who actually performed the assault? Well, you know, on this is, this is one of the problems of social media, right? Um, reacting too quickly, uh, reacting on too little information. Um, so I retract that. You, I can understand the bus, for the bus driver doesn't need this. He doesn't want this on his bus. Um, but then he also does go with this guy and says, you did something wrong or you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be running here unless you did something wrong. I'm paraphrasing him. Um, but he does not need this. Nobody on the bus needs this, right? This stuff is becoming more and more common because our social controls are gone. Our new normal has been degraded. This is what happens when we live in a, 
in a never-ending episode of the Twilight Zone, which is what we live in in the West now. This is social breakdown. It can't happen any other way than it's happening on your screen as you see it, because we have abandoned the truth. We've abandoned our anchor to objective reality. None of us trust each other. And it's going to get worse. All right, next topic before we come up to the break. This, this is a, a thematic callback to story we had on the show last week. Let's put that headline up, Kevin. Canada, Metro Vancouver Transit Police say they don't know whether sexual assault suspect is male or female despite having semen evidence. Yes, you're reading it right and you're hearing it right. This again is from Redux, R-E-D-U-X-X, hands down the best site for accurate journalistic coverage of this trans issue. I'm going to read to you a little from the story. The Metro Vancouver Transit Police say they don't know if the primary suspect in a SkyTrain sexual assault is a male or female, despite having recovered semen during the investigation. On February 8th, the Transit Police issued a press release pleading for help to identify the suspect. I break in a little bit here. This assault, you're going to you're going to see some video leading up to it took place last year, August of 2023. Now, in February of 2024, they're putting out the police are putting out a press release asking for help from the public to identify the suspect. Keep that in mind as the story goes on. Back to it. While photos and videos showed what appeared to be a male with long hair, some basic information on the suspect was curiously omitted from the release. No pronouns were used and no information on the suspect's sex was included. According to the press release, the incident took place in August of 2023 in the early hours of the morning. A woman entered Surrey Central Skytrain Station and was making her way up the platform. But as she stepped onto the escalator, the suspect followed closely behind her. While they were on the escalator, the suspect sexually assaulted the victim. The suspect is described as 30 to 40 years of age, 5 foot 10 to 6 feet tall, with a dark complexion and a slender build. He was seen wearing a wig with long, dark, wavy hair, a light-colored T-shirt, black biker shorts, light-colored running shoes. Now, we have some audio and video courtesy of Redux. Thank you very much um, for doing what you do. This is journalist Amy Hamm. She called the police after the press release was put out. Let's hear that conversation. Hi, my name is um, Amy Hamm. I'm a journalist, and I just saw a press release about uh, an assault on Surrey Skytrain last August. Yeah. Uh, I'm just calling to get any more information that you have. First, I was wondering if the suspect is a male or a female. I've gotten this question quite a few times, and we've left it out for a reason. It's because we don't know. Okay. Um, the video evidence shows someone who is um, who would appear female, who is female presenting, but the physical evidence is that of a genetic male. The physical, does that mean, like, uh, this person was assaulted and raped with a penis, or...? Um, the suspect, uh, we believe, does have a penis um, because of the DNA evidence that was recovered. But the video shows someone who appears to be female presenting. So that's why we left the gender out, because we, we weren't really sure how this person identifies. We didn't want to get it wrong. Okay. Um, do you, is there any information that you could share with me that's not in the press release? So... 
the investigation is quite complicated and we've omitted some of the evidence to preserve the integrity of that investigation when it does go to court so that's why we've withheld that information okay so i i I would love to give you every detail but i I simply can't really i simply can't well um that's okay um that's okay, policewoman, because we can. We can we can see it and we can hear it in what you said. You said semen evidence. This, I have to I have to put this quote on the screen for you just to underline it. We weren't really sure how this person identifies, and we didn't want to get it wrong. This is the Metro Vancouver Transit Police. So it is more important not to misgender a rape suspect than it is to tell the public what the rape suspect actually looks like in a press release where they are asking for the public's help to identify the rape suspect. These are, these are inverted police values. They are warped values. They are reversed values. This is complete reversal. It's Isaiah 520. This is evil in practice. This is evil. Even though not everybody involved with this is essentially evil. I'm just guessing, but I think I could hear the conflict and the cognitive dissonance in the policewoman who was speaking to Amy Ham. But you don't have to be essentially evil in your core to carry out evil on behalf of other people. And everyone involved in this is carrying out evil. What are we going to do? I don't know. All right. Coming up on a break, but we'd like to ask you for your support. And it is a really good time to do it. Um, One of the main gateways to supporting us is our is our Substack disaffectedpod.substack.com. We've lowered the price. We went down from $10 to $7. Why did we do that? Why are we underselling ourselves? (laughs) Well, because times are tough. The economy is terrible. Um, And we would rather have support from people at a level they can afford. I'd rather have you as a viewer and a supporter than to lose you. Um, So it's it's a great time to get in on that. If you join us there, you're helping to produce the show. You're helping to produce the writing. And I I, there's about 300 uh, posts up there on that Substack. And I've got a couple of um, well, I would say this, wouldn't I? I got a couple of bangers coming soon. Um, So disaffectedpod.substack.com, new lower price. And yes, at seven dollars, you will also get access to the Discord server. Come back and see us after the break. Can't get enough of our love, baby? That's because you're not subscribed. Move that thumb over to the great big old subscribe button on your podcast app so you never miss an episode. We put out audio-only exclusive content that you won't get on any other video platform, so make sure you subscribe today. Looking for a non-woke place to put your money where your mouth is? Put it where my mouth is. 
Disaffected supporters get access to our private Discord chat server, backstage episode recording sessions, surprise guests, and more. And all it takes is $10 a month. You've got two options. Either Substack, visit us at disaffectedpod.substack.com, or go over to subscribestar.com slash disaffected. Remember, choose the $10 level or higher for Discord access. Welcome back. That promo, that commercial you just heard is totally wrong. I know it's the same one you've been hearing for two years because Kevin and I need to get new commercials and new promos. So you don't need to choose the $10 level to get Discord access. We've lowered the price on the Substack and you can get it at $7. So help us out, would you? Maybe if maybe if more of you paid a little more, we'd be able to have more staff and we wouldn't screw things up so much. Just saying. (laughs) All right. Let's go back to talking about unrealistic expectations (laughs) on a personal level with and on a generational level with with Generation Z expectations for work, salary, home and the balance of family life. Take a listen to this. Why is it that I have to work 40 hours a week just so I can have a place to live 40 hours a week? makes me two thousand dollars a month and my rent is 1660. so i work 40 hours a week so i can have a two-bedroom apartment and an extra 300 dollars a month like doesn't cover my phone internet food you know so not only do i not have any extra money but just working makes me so exhausted that I don't have time either. Like I get off work at 5.30, come home and I'm just so tired. I'm so tired that like anything that I need to do outside of work, I then just push off to like the weekends and I'm like, I'm just too tired to do this after work. I'll wait until Saturday. So then I end up with so much to do on the weekend that ends up having to be split into two days. So I have to do stuff on both Saturday and Sunday. So then I don't get a day off. I don't get a day to relax. I don't get to decompress. So it is really like working seven days a week, constantly. And I don't want to do that anymore, right? Like. I don't care how poor and miserable I would have to be, but I literally can't have a place to live without this, you know? Like, I don't know what to do. I'm not, I'm not made for this. I don't have the money. Okay. I'm going to split the difference on this and I'm going to be more charitable than you might expect me to be because I'm not entirely unsympathetic to this young woman. Um, I think she is genuinely upset. She looks and sounds really tired and really stressed to me. And whether or not you, you, you know, leaving everything else aside, when you're exhausted, when you're stressed, when you're scared about money and you get emotional, 
it's hard to think clearly. I have been in her position. Not exactly that, but I understand this. I'm not going to make excess fun of her. And it is also true that the economy is terrible and housing prices are out of control. Um, it is objectively, this is one thing Gen Generation Z is right about, it is objectively more difficult and more expensive for them to live, to pay rent, or even to have the possibility of having a house than it has been uh, in a long time. Um, it was not this hard for me, although it was significantly harder than it was for the boomers, my parents' generation. You know, I, it, I was 35 years old before I could afford to buy a house, and what I got was a 150-year-old house built by mill workers from the 19th century by hand that was 980 square feet, you know, and it, <laughs> you know, and I was glad to have it, but that that's what I could afford. So, but on the other hand, and, and this is, this is not an individual problem. It's not a problem with this young woman, and it's not a problem with, with particular members of this age cohort. It is a problem that they all share. They didn't do this to themselves. Their expectations, even given how much harder it is to afford things now, are completely out of touch with reality. And that is the fault of their parents, their teachers, and the culture that we all live in. Frankly, let me blame the culture a little bit. You heard the phrase starter home? Does that sound normal to you? It shouldn't, because 20 years ago, it wasn't a starter home. Oh, we're going to get a starter home. We're going to buy a home, but then, you know, we'll move up to a better and bigger one. Now, of course, some people have always done that. <clears throat> but in the mid-20th century, during the baby boom, people bought homes, and that was the home they raised all their kids in, meaning the kids had to share bedrooms, meaning there weren't enough bathrooms. There was one car in the driveway, not two. And that was a damn good standard of living compared to everything that came before. When, but this, now here's, here's, I hope somebody can get through to young women, young people. It's not a women thing, it's a people thing. Like her. She has to adjust her expectations. She's expecting on a $24,000 a year salary, it would, I, 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 Kevin and I were doing some mental arithmetic on this. I don't know if I trust the answer we came up with, but it sounds like a suspiciously low salary. Um, Kevin's telling me in my ear that we don't know if we trust what she says either. Good point. Let's just go with it for the sake of assumption. On a $24,000 a year salary, at her age, she looks like she's in her early to mid-20s. She wants a two-bedroom apartment and she just entered the workforce. At her age, I had roommates. You know, in college, I lived in a rail, a shotgun apartment with four other people. This is a rotating apartment. Roommates came in and out. We just, the next person who was going to be there and be a senior assumed the lease. And it just, it was sort of, <laughs> it was part of the legacy of Sarah Lawrence in Tuckahoe. Um, but that's what you did. You pulled your money. You paid for a room, you shared the kitchen, you shared the bathrooms, you shared the living room. Roommates, normal. Remember Three's Company, the sitcom? I know some of you don't, but you should. Um, so this goes further though. So it, it plays into an interaction I had on social media. There was a tweet uh, that where I got this woman's uh, TikTok post or Instagram, whatever the hell it is from, was uh, a commentator who had a lot of sympathy 
for this young woman. I, I think more than I had. Um, but he made some good points. He said some of the exhaustion that young people experience has to do with corporate expectations of, of uh, just this endless servile cheerfulness to customers. And there is some of that going on. And I think it's it's a good point worth recognizing. I think there's less of it than there used to be. They, they're pretty much entitled to be surly as hell now. But I responded to it this way. Here's what I said on Twitter. Um, the, those are all good points, but what seems to get lost in this larger conversation is the consistent failure of young people in service jobs to be minimally polite and courteous. And it is a problem that most people are seeing. Lack of eye contact, no verbal acknowledgement, employees through body language, tone, or action implying indignation, offense, or irritation at one for asking for reasonable, basic assistance in a shop. These things are not, in my view, unreasonable demands for excessive emotional labor. I think we need to disaggregate the complaints about the excesses of corporate demands from the, um, from the frank failure of young people more and more to meet basic standards of competence and civility. And I, and I do think that. Well, that, of course, got some reaction. And I want to show you this one young woman who reacted because she joined the conversation uh, just balls to the wall hostile right out in the beginning. I can't I'm not going to show you every single tweet she reacted to. I'm just going to tell you she's reacting to this or that. It would just take too long. Um, but first of all, she's got all the markers. You'll see it when we put her tweet up here. Uh, maybe 25 white woman they them pronouns and her handle is normalish vegan and i'm not putting this up here i just i want to say this please don't go harassing her don't don't do a dog pile on her i'm, I'm giving some thought to how i use social media i've participated in dog piles and i'm not proud of that there are times in public figures when it's more appropriate but you know, let's just comment on this. Please don't go after her. Um, she says, in response to what I said, none of these things are actually part of these jobs. And the fact that people like you demand they are, while people are making less than a living wage, which your generation refuses to assist us with, is fucking absurd. And I responded and I said, I'm not asking for anything unreasonable when I ask for basic politeness and eye contact. I'm really not. It's not unreasonable. She responds. Yes, you are. And when you're waiting tables, your tip depends on your being personable. That's part of the job. Someone stocking shelves isn't getting paid to help you find cereal they stopped carrying two years ago. Really? Yeah, actually, they are. I've been a grocery store clerk. I've been a retail salesman. Yes, it is your job to help the customers. But let's back that up. Yes, it is a reasonable expectation that you not react with on the offense with hostility to being asked for help. It is incumbent on you to make eye contact. I'm not asking you to be, oh, how may I help you, sir? I don't demand that kind of slavish fawning. I agree that that's offensive, but that's not what normal people are asking for. Do you see the disconnection from reality, everybody? What has been called excessive emotional labor? And I know she's a little extreme, 
But this is a common attitude among her age set. And then she starts projecting onto everyone in the Twitter thread who is disagreeing with her. The next one. And yet, you same people complain about getting paid a living wage. What is the incentive if people know their wages are not going to increase, chances of a promotion are slim to none? Well, listen, again, if you're not making what if you're not making a living wage, I'm sympathetic to that. But there's some caveats there. What is a living wage? Grocery stores around here are paying starting at $15 an hour. Little Caesars is paying 20 freaking dollars an hour to cashier. Okay? This is not a slave wage. It's just not. Even with inflation, it's not. Do you know when I was a nonprofit executive and, and, and all on me, I undersold myself for a long time. I believed in what I was doing. I loved my job. And I, and I took a charity salary for it. But it were, my salary worked out to about $26 an hour. You're really going to tell me that $20 an hour at a grocery store? Is that unfair? Um, then someone else disagreed with her on Twitter and she came back. You know, they were telling her, you know, why are you, you know, why are you treating people this way? She says, maybe because the employees are fucking traumatized from working for slave wages in many cases through a pandemic. Okay, just just stop it. Just just stop it. This is nonsense. <laughs> but they believe it. Much of this generation really, really believes this. Not only has their upbringing, their lack of upbringing, their parents have just, you know, and, and, and when I was a kid, you criticize parents for uh, putting on the boob tube. That's what they call TV and letting television raise your children. It's way worse now. You're letting your phones raise your children. And why are parents doing this? Because they're addicted to their phones. They don't want to raise their children. So they just pass the pathology down to their children and look what it has done to them. Last tweet in this. Um, and I've been charitable up till now, but this one is getting the voice, okay? I'm openly hostile right now because I'm not at work. Imagine thinking I owe you customer service on a free fucking app. You know what? Piss off, honey. <laughs> Come on. Nobody's demanding customer service if you jumped into this conversation. It's the hostility. Complete disconnection from reality. This kind of behavior tracks with what we call vulnerable narcissism. All right. Want to see some more disconnection from reality? Let us go to Indiana. This story is from Fox News. A um, I'm just going to read this to you. We don't have any quotes yet. A Republican lawmaker in Indiana flashed his concealed firearm to students protesting for gun control at the state's capital on Tuesday. State Representative Jim Lucas approached the group of five teenagers to ask what brought them to the capital. He, bega he began to defend gun rights when they told him they were participating in a protest with a branch of the Every Town for Gun Safety advocacy group. One of the teens began recording the exchange. Lucas argued that Americans are not, quote, truly free unless they are equipped to defend themselves. So he flashed them. He showed them his completely legal gun, concealed carry, probably on his hip in a holster, and then this happened, quote, one of the students involved in the incident, Alana Trissell, 17, spoke with the Associated Press afterwards, saying the conversation, quote, 
took a turn for the worst. It's worse, Alana, not worst. After Lucas revealed his gun. Next quote. This is it. Since a state legislator had shown a weapon, I felt all the more powerless, she said. I felt scared. I felt alone. I was timid and almost petrified with fear. Good God Almighty. Good God. Petrified with fear because he showed her his concealed carry gun. Now, I don't know how much of this was her ginning up histrionics and how much of it was taking advantage of the situation. They're both narcissistically inclined behaviors. You know that, that saying, familiarity breeds contempt? Well, lack of familiarity can, can breed fear and paranoia. It's happened to me. Being sheltered from the real world brings fear when you encounter the real world. I have a friend who is teaching me how to handle and shoot guns, rifles in, uh, specifically. I live in the country now. Um, not that far out of town, but far enough. We get bears out there. They go through the trash. Um, and anyway, it's just, it's just a damn good idea to be able to defend myself in my own home and not have to depend on an increasingly strained infrastructure like calling 911. So he's teaching me how to shoot guns. And he decided he wanted to get me used to it. He, I came back. He's, uh, my friend comes in and out of my house because he's doing some work on the house. Um, he's welcome to come and go. I came home and he'd put, his, he'd put the rifle that he's loaning me for this in my bedroom up against the corner of the wall. <clears throat> with a couple of bullets in the shoulder strap. It wasn't loaded. He taught me how to load, unload the gun, etc. Well, the first night, I couldn't bear to sleep with it in the room. <laughs> it just, it freaked me out too much. So I took it and I put it two rooms away. Um, it's not because I'm a suicide risk. Even though I've been dealing with depression, I'm not actually a suicide risk. Um but I knew when I did that, that this was a temporary fear that came from having been sheltered from handling guns and being around them for most of my life, which I was. So after the first night, I put it back in my bedroom and I've slept like a baby ever since. I gave myself one night to be in my feels. And then I said, no, get a grip. This is what we have to do. Th this generation is going to have to do this. Their parents should have done this to them in stages and steps, but they didn't. All right. More disconnection from reality and total control. State of California believes it now has the power to rename towns that it doesn't like. This story comes from the Washington Examiner. I'll read some of it. They are trying to force Fresno County in California to change the name of one of the towns inside Fresno County. That town is called Squaw Valley. From the examiner, a fight over a controversial name change in one California town has pitted local leaders and residents against some Native Americans, the governor, state lawmakers, and the federal government. And it's only growing more combative by the day as the deadline approaches to change it. Native Americans have long campaigned to remove the word squaw, a racist slur and insult against Native women. I'm breaking in here. There is not universal agreement on that. Back to the story from the name of an incorporated town in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada. Name change advocates scored a win two years ago after the Interior Department issued a directive to remove the derogatory word from federal lands. Uh, 
The decision was further cemented when California lawmakers passed a measure to erase it from geographic landmarks and other places around the state by 2025. But see, there's not unanimity about the word squaw among American Indians. Some of them, including some women, are vigorously pushing back against this name change. Back to the story. But Fresno leaders sued the state over the name change, arguing California's directive violates the First Amendment and the community's right to free speech and that state lawmakers and the federal government needed to butt out. <laughs> Fresno County, for one, is refusing to change it. Supervisor Nathan Magsig, who represents blah, 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 told the Washington Examiner that although residents know the meaning of the word has changed, they, including the Native Americans who are among the first tribes on the land, want to keep it and preserve its history. Magsig charged it as outside groups that are hell-bent on changing it and painting the town as racist. This is a local matter, he said. And now we, we do have one quote from him here to share with you. What's interesting is that there were about half a dozen Native American women who said, don't change the name. And they shared about where the name came from in their history, and they shared about where the name came from. Well, that was either a typo or he repeats himself, Magsig said. You know, <laughs> if you're Gen X and older, if you're thinking this, I'm thinking it too. Share, half breed. The white man always called me Indian squaw. <laughs> I should have clipped that. <laughs> Never mind. Whatever you feel, whatever your feels are about the word squaw, you're going to get down. How do you feel about the state asserting this level of dominion? It's amazing. Right down to the local level, the name of the names of towns. Picking town is this is something everyone across the board should be able to agree is is a massive overstep, regardless of partisanship, regardless of whether you consider yourself left, right, libertarian, right in the center, anarchist, Republican, Democrat. This is not a partisan issue. This is basic bread and butter stuff. Should the state have this kind of power? Most Americans would have said, hell no, until recently. Maybe they do. I hope they do. It scares the hell out of me that California Governor Gavin Newsom may be placed on the ballot this fall by the Democratic National Committee because they're very likely, um, they're very likely to replace Biden on the ballot. It's, it's looking more and more likely every day. God help us with any of their choices, but Newsom, that man is a straight-up sociopath. All right, coming up on another break. You want to talk to somebody who lives in the real world at least some of the time? Come talk to me. I offer one-hour coaching and consulting sessions at joshuaslocum.net. And while I specialize in talking to people about abusive family members, cluster B personality disorder traits in colleagues, loved ones, um, uh, you know, church members, social groups, I also have a lot of people who... Uh, believe it or not, I, I would say a good 20 to 30 percent of the clients who come to me say, I just want to talk to somebody who isn't going to look at me funny when I talk about this, who's not going to try to talk me out of it and who actually recognizes reality. And you know what? I get a lot out of these conversations, too, because I need that, too. I've said that to you guys in the audience before. You know, so many of you have said 
disaffected helps keep me sane and keep me anchored to reality in, in these really twisted times, especially since the pandemic. Well, you talking back to me, you leaving comments, you being a part of this helps to keep me sane too. So if you're interested, joshuaslocum.net. And remember, if you are a paid supporter of Disaffected, you get a $30 discount. We'll see you after the break. Can't get enough of our love, baby? That's because you're not subscribed. Move that thumb over to the great big old subscribe button on your podcast app so you never miss an episode. We put out audio-only exclusive content that you won't get on any other video platform, so make sure you subscribe today. Looking for a non-woke place to put your money where your mouth is? Put it where my mouth is. Disaffected supporters get access to our private Discord chat server, backstage episode recording sessions, surprise guests, and more. And all it takes is $10 a month. You've got two options. Either Substack, visit us at disaffectedpod.substack.com, or go over to subscribestar.com slash disaffected. Remember, choose the $10 level or higher for Discord access. What you're seeing on your screen is a headline from the Daily Mail. New York father loses legal battle to stop his son, eight years old, from taking puberty blockers to change gender. This does call back to what we talked about last week when we told you about the case of the 14-year-old girl that the state of Montana has taken away from her parents um, because they won't agree to gender-affirming care. So, from the story... This is this is what I meant last week when I said there's no place to hide. We're talking about a blue state, New York here, but we were talking about Montana last week. And check out the comments. Check out the comments under last week's episode on YouTube and on Rumble. Uh, Actually, people are saying from their own supposedly red states, they're seeing the same thing, even in even in their conservative southern churches. Woke is a universal solvent. There is nothing it will not dissolve. There's no place to hide from the story. New York family court officials have denied a father the legal right to stop his eight-year-old son from taking life-changing hormones that would begin his medical transition to a girl. Dennis Hannon, 32, a senior software engineer from Buffalo, has been locked in a nightmare legal battle with Erie Supreme Court spanning seven years, fighting to retain his fundamental parental rights. He claims that the boy's mother, quote, pushed their child's transition, and says the boy himself was not distressed about living as a boy. We've got a quote for you. What's more, a year after the court's ruling, the young child, Matthew, that's a pseudonym, reverted back to his original male gender is now a regular little boy. However, the father has lost any say in medical decisions about his son and sees him for just a few hours every week. He cannot afford to appeal to regain full custody. Next quote. Mr. Hannon claimed his ex-wife began dressing his son in girls' clothes when he turned three in 2017, two years after he had split from his child's mother. Yeah, they're both great, aren't they? Mr. Hannon saw his son twice a week and every other weekend while his ex-partner had custody for the remainder of the time. 
Next quote. When I was picking him up, he was a boy named Matthew, Hannon said. And I didn't realize that when he was in his mom's care, he was actually a girl named Ruby. In 2019, his mother sent him to a transgender-affirming therapist and sought puberty blockers to stop the production of male hormones, according to court documents seen by the Daily Mail. And of course, this was done with the school's help. Quote, and a year before, and this year is 2020 that they're talking about, Mr. Hannon had received a letter from his son's school, son's kindergarten, addressed to the parent or guardian of Ruby Rose Hannon, which used she, her pronouns. I thought they'd mailed it to the wrong address, he said. And finally, no official diagnosis of gender dysphoria was ever made by medical professionals. Well, it doesn't matter whether there was an official diagnosis made because the diagnosis and the prescription itself is pure insanity from the upside down world. A little boy of three years old being dressed as a girl. When he gets to be eight, his mother is trying to figure out how to put him on puberty blockers, a project that she started with a doctor when he was four or five. This is as disconnected from reality as, as it can possibly be. It is so wicked. It's difficult to believe it's even possible. It's difficult to believe that I'm reading this right. There's so much of it right now, <clears throat> but it is happening. And it would have happened to so many of us, gay people and also straight people who are gender non-conforming, sissy boys, butch girls. My mother would have done this if I had been a child in this era. She tried to help get it done to another young boy in my extended family. There but for the grace of God go I. All right. <clears throat> I'm going to read you an essay from Substack um, because I want to tease the Substack, but I think you'll be interested in this. But this is the kind of stuff you get there. It's about, it's about machines, computers, and transactions getting slower and slower and slower as technology marches on. Um, there's a big essay on machines and computers somewhere inside my head that's going to pour out sometime this spring. Um, this essay is kind of a, a, a prelude, a scratch, uh, scratch pad, a first draft. Um, but I'm interested in whether you see this. So, of course, as with anything on the show, leave a comment under this video on any of these topics. Tell, tell us what it looks like to you. Few seem to notice, but computer operations that used to happen instantly are now taking much longer. There seems to be built-in time delays that I cannot explain. It can't be that these functions all take a lot of processing power. They're the same basic functions that computers used to do instantly just a few years ago. And it's everywhere. And even though each instance is just a few portions of a second usually, I find that it adds up in a way that, that really annoys. Here's a few examples. ATMs, money machines. The transaction takes twice as long as it did five or ten years ago. There's a software-imposed delay between every screen transition. Please wait while we access the functions on your card. Meep. Then you hear the card being jerked in and clicked in. You know, now they hold on to your shit now, you know. You don't just swipe it. They're, no, that's mine. And if I don't like you or your transaction, 
I'm going to keep it. <laughs> this leads to multi-second delays at each step of this transaction at the ATM. Oh, and there are five more steps now than there used to be. Enter your PIN. Do you want a receipt? Do you want it by email? Do you want it on paper? Is it primary checking? There's only one checking account there. There's no such thing as secondary checking. But you have to answer. Oh, oh, and also for English, press one. Fuck you. This is America. How about in Spanish for Spanish? Press one. Oh, you don't want to say that? Start saying it. We need to start saying it. <laughs> the same thing happens at gas pumps, gasoline pumps. Please wait. Please choose from this menu of things you didn't ask for and don't want. Also, please answer this mandatory questionnaire about whether you want gas station, credit card, reward, club, points, bonanza. You may not skip this. We will not sell you gas unless you perform the question ritual. Have a fucked day, loser. Ding. Oh, it is. It's vexing. Computers. I have a brand new HP laptop. Kevin and I went equipment shopping uh, around Christmas. But try moving five Microsoft Word files from one folder to another on the same machine. Astonishingly, I am seeing something I haven't seen in at least 15 years on a computer. I'm seeing that hold on progress bar and the spinning wheel and the working on it and then the little um, the little graph that shows you how close it is to getting done to move five, uh, probably a total of 400K, not even megabytes, 400K worth of data from one folder to the other. Hold on, working on it. It's not the only computer I'm seeing this on either. You know, that's the kind of thing that you used to see on a computer that was low on resources or when you had put a uh, piece of software program into it that was too high powered for the processor and the computer. But this is not that. It's also happening with basic functions like drag and drop. Now, I have a friend who has a fairly newish BMW. And the thing is absolutely choked with digitization. It's an auditory cacophony every time you get in and start the car. There's a TV size screen on the dashboard that dings in with several different, sometimes competing chimes simultaneously. Buckle your seatbelt, check the oil, adjust this. Do you want to turn this on? Do you want to turn that on? Blah, blah, service bulletin, blah, blah, blah. If I had to drive this thing every day, I'd, I'd drive it right off a cliff. The only saving grace actually is that whoever designed the auditory mess in this car, at least took the rules of Western harmony into account, and the notes in the chimes are actually harmonious and consonant rather than dissonant and clashing. So small favors, I'll take it. Um, you know, but it's not that check this, buckle that. Notice these graphic lines showing your car through the rear camera. And now listen to the increasingly shrill beep, 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 beep if BMW doesn't like the way you're parallel parking. It is I mean, to me, it's exhausting. Um, now, with what I'm going to read to you next, here's the concept to bear in mind. The collapsing of a machine's function into one control button, separate functions into one control button, where these functions would have had their own buttons that gave task-specific user confirmation until very recently. The buttons would also be, wait for it, labeled 
with their function, not with crypto cryptograms, but with actual labels that tell you what they do so that you can understand what you're asking the machine to do. <laughs> so the controls for the heated seats, for example, they have a software imposed delay. It's one button for all three settings and to turn on and off. And there's a software imposed delay between each iteration of pressing the button. You have only one button, so you have to push it repeatedly to go from low to high and then on to off. But don't you dare expect an instant response. The only confirmation you get is this LED light, which is delayed. But don't press too fast or you'll, you'll lose your place. And what the, I know this is a small thing isolated by itself. But there are so many of these small things isolated by themselves. This is becoming standard and universal, and it is very irritating. And it's a, it's a time suck. It, 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 this, it throws off your cadence. It throws off the rhythm of your fingers because your mind is competing with this imposed delay. Your mind is used to, okay, I'm going to press a button and get a function, but I don't know how much delay is built in there. And I mean, has anyone else noticed how all of these little tiny changes are starting to add up in everyday transactions. Here's another one, my washing machine. Uh, when I sold the house and I moved to my other house, I had to leave the appliances. It was part of the contract and I left. Stupidly, I knew I should have negotiated this. I left my 1970s Kenmore um, washing machine there, the one that just simply has mechanical dials. Oh God, I wish I had it back. In order to begin any cycle on my washing machine, even if you're setting it merely to do an extra respin of the clothes because it, the load was unbalanced and it didn't wring everything out, you're not requesting a wash cycle. You're just asking it to spin again. The machine still has to do this stupid pre-cycle. Oh, and, and many functions are collapsed into one button too. And the dials that are on there are connected to a chip, not to an actual mechanical timer or anything, and they are not intuitively labeled. Press the button to get a spin. Wait five seconds of just pure silence. I think it's five seconds. Sometimes it seems like it's longer. Then I hear the machine do two little squirts of water under the clothes. It goes, shh, shh, shh. Why? Why? Then you, <laughs> you know, again, I'm asking for a spin. I'm not asking for it to, it has to do this thing. This is the best way to do it, apparently. Then you get 10, at least 10 seconds of silence, the machine doing absolutely nothing, no LED light confirmation back at you. You get no visual or auditory confirmation that the function you just ordered from the machine will actually be performed or when. Um, I still haven't figured out the rhythm of this thing, so I end up standing in front of it you know, hoping that it's going to do what I want. And of course, you know, I'm tempted to lift up the lid and look, but of course the lid is locked. So I can't tell if it's just agitating or if it's starting to spin. I just have to trust it. I, I swear to God, I th the next time I go in there, I'm expecting to say, I'm sorry, Josh, I can't do that. <laughs> oh, I'm not going to talk about my washing machine anymore. There are many possibilities to explain this kind of thing that I'm noticing, and some people have suggested that companies are now treating resource-intense graphic displays as somehow mandatory for every transaction. They're bogging down ATMs and other computers with vector graphics, screen wipes, cinema-style dissolves on, on an account balance screen, for example. And I'm sure there's some truth to this, but I don't think it can explain it all. 
Um, other people have said that a, a lot of these machines now, of course, are connected to the Internet. So they're pinging servers. They're tracking your data and they're waiting for a confirmation back. None of this is necessary to actually perform the function. It's necessary to collect data on every single bloody micro step within each transaction you take. You're being tracked. But it does seem to me that there are probably some conscious choices that have been made by designers to hobble and slow down machine functions with these imposed delays. Um, I'll, I'll just give one more example here. There's more to this story. I'm not reading the whole thing. It's a little bit different when you have to speak it out loud. It doesn't come across the same way. Uh, oh, Kevin's telling me, uh, a good reminder, thank you. Um, encryption. Um, security encryption is adding to this too, and we do want security encryption. But if that's the case, we ought to be prioritizing those things that we really want, like our encrypted data, and getting rid of all this fluff. It's just, it's, it is so annoying. It is so annoying. Even top-of-the-line merchandise and machines that you pay good money for irritate you this way. There seems to be a reversal. It's like, you're, the machines don't serve you. You serve them, and you serve, you know, the people who are using their data. But, you know, my car, which is a 2012 Prius, right? So it's not the most modern car, but it has the same thing. Every function in there is on a gradient. Nothing happens instantly. Everything has to happen smoothly. I think there's some perception that there's something luxurious about smooth actions. No kachunks, no firm closings, just, ah, I, it, it, I don't experience it as luxurious. So I try to turn the heater fan or the air conditioner fan on, and that damn thing takes 10 seconds to come up to speed, and it puts up a little pip, a little LED pip for each one. And I'm like, just turn the goddamn fan on! You know, it's just, it's just everything. Um, the end result of this, the cumulative result of this, is that the same pedestrian physical world functions that we used to be able to control physically and instantly are now these drawn out, indirect, time intensive processes. You know, you can't, I can't help but suspect that this is part of an ethos, an aesthetic sensibility. Something like it's gauche to have to interact with hard mechanical switches or to interact directly with a machine in a way that gives you firm, tactile contact and feedback. It's low class. It's old. It's just not it. I suspect there's some of that going on there. Can't confirm it. All right. I'm going to leave the rest here. The last thing I want to talk to you about as we close up here, I'm going to riff off a, a tweet from a Portland resident. We'll put it on your screen. He said, it is truly remarkable the decline we've seen in Portland in just four short years, but the sources of that de decline are not in dispute. We locked down too long with little benefit to COVID outcomes, particularly as it relates to schools. We permitted political violence to go unchecked. A demoralized and depleted police force cannot respond to most instances of criminality, and a pernicious grift of left-wing nonprofits siphons off tax dollars to fund radical activism as the issues those dollars are supposed to address, like vagrancy, worsen. Yeah, well, yes, this Twitter user is right. I differ with him 
there, there was no level of lockdown that would have been okay, regardless of COVID outcomes. And I think we need to get all the way there. No, not even an inch, not a millimeter. That's a hard line. That's a hard boundary. If you don't hold that boundary, it will always creep and you will have no fence around your own property, your own sovereignty. That is what allows this to happen. I'm not trying to be extra critical of this account. I wasn't like rude when I came back to him, but that's dangerous. No, even if there were great COVID outcomes, it would not have been okay to lock down citizens and kick children out of schools. We have to get right face to face with the truth. And that's, that's what I want to talk about to wind this up. I recently had dinner with a friend, a retired school teacher, um, who's been a Democrat all of her life. <clears throat> yes, believe it or not, I have Democrat friends. <laughs> not many of them will speak to me anymore, but God knows I appreciate those who still do. Um, we were talking about these issues and about about how much different things look to her than they did four years ago. And how, I don't think she said this in these terms, but the sentiment was what, what we hear frequently, I didn't leave the left, the left left me. You know, what happened to the left? How did the left become cheerleaders for corporate control over everyone's lives? How did the left become against free speech? How did the left become the party of, of censoring people and shutting them down and debanking them? and kicking them off social media platforms for having unapproved opinions, aren't these the things that we always used to accuse the right of doing, right? The, this is the questioning process that happens to people who've been on the left. I went through it. And it reminds me, she said, it was a really good conversation. And, and it was actually a really hopeful conversation. And I know she's watching this. Um, it, it, it left me with some hope. Thank you. Um, we were talking about why doesn't anybody say anything? You know, she says these things, but she's starting to say them in, in small company, like at the dinner table with me. But some of her colleagues, former, um, you know, former colleagues won't say them to anybody. And some of them just don't want to believe it. They don't want to hear it. They'll tell you to stop talking when you, when you point these inconsistencies out. And she says, we can't deal with it. We can't. We don't want to think that these people we admired for so long lied to us. And she's right. That's an honest statement. That is what's going on emotionally and psychologically for people. We don't want to think they lied. We don't want to see them for who they really are. We have to. This reminds me, a little pre-apology here. You're going to get a reference to Joan Crawford and to my mother because this is disaffected and I'm Joshua Slocum and that's what you get. <laughs> Drink up. One of my favorite movies is the 1945 Mildred Pierce starring Joan Crawford. It's a film noir. The story is a housewife and a family that gets broken. They get divorced. <clears throat> Her husband has an affair. Mildred's husband, Bert, has an affair. Um, but he also goes away from the family because Mildred has, they have two daughters and Mildred has spoiled her elder daughter, Vita, absolutely spoiled her. They're lower middle class people. Bert has to work hard. 
Uh, Mildred has to work hard. She makes extra money at home after the, the work day is over caring for the house. She makes pies and sells them to the neighbors to make ends meet. But she get, takes this extra money and she buys her daughter designer dresses. She uh, buys her elocution lessons, piano lessons, things this family can't afford all of these things. And as a result, she gets a spoiled, stuck-up, class-climbing, devious little daughter in Vita. And in the middle of the movie, and, and, and Bert, her husband, you know, keeps telling her, you can't, you're not seeing what she's turned into. You neglect our younger daughter, Kay. You don't say anything about her. For Vita, and I'm not giving a, a direct quote, but he's like, she's worth, she isn't worth half what Kay is morally. It's true. Mildred doesn't want to see it. Then she has to see it because in the middle of the movie, Mildred makes a great success out of herself. She goes out on a limb as a, as a divorcee. She finds financing and she buys a shutdown restaurant. She turns it into a roaring success. And then she has a chain of restaurants. She becomes wealthy. She makes the money. Vita finally has the lifestyle. And as uh, Eve Arden, the best sidekick character, says of the new car she got for her birthday. Oh, which one is it? That thing out there a block long. Vita decides that she wants even more money and she wants respectability. So she starts dating a man from the American version of an aristocratic family, old money. She pretends to be pregnant. She's not. But nobody knows this at first. And she does this to blackmail and extort the family because they will not tolerate their, they don't want their son married to trash. He's not going to marry trash, but they don't want the, remember this is 1945. They don't want the stain of an out of wedlock birth attaching to their son too. So they offer her a check. I don't know how much it is, but it's a good big sum of money to go away and be quiet. Vita takes the check. She and Mildred go home. Vita starts smirking as she looks at the check when they walk into the living room. And she makes these flippant comments. And Mildred still thinks she's actually pregnant. And she's asking Vita, why is she acting this way? And Vita says something that indicates that she's not really pregnant. She says, well, it's a difference of opinion. And my opinion is that I am. She doesn't say pregnant because they don't say that. I, I don't remember what the phrase was. This was Mildred's cold face moment with Vita. She sees her for who she really is. And here's the line. And this is a line th that is never far from my mind because it applies to so many things. And yes, it was running through my mind when I woke up to the narcissist, the pathological narcissist that my mother was, the thing that set me on the entire journey that ended up making this show with Kevin with the thesis that it has. And that line is, I think I'm seeing you for the first time. And I think I'm seeing you for the first time in my life and you're cheap and horrible. There are a lot of people on the left, on the right too, but it's the left these days that we have admired, that we've been told to look up to that we've been told are heroes. They love us, they care for us, they want the best for us. They're not the people they say they are. They're wearing a mask. And when you take it off, you see who they really are for the first time in your life. And they're cheap 
and horrible.